my first guest is Emeritus Professor of Mathematics at Oxford University, John Lennox. He's an internationally renowned speaker and writer on the interface of science and Christianity. You might know him from the debates he did a few years ago now, opposite the likes of Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. But it's been over the span of Professor Lennox's lifetime that AI, artificial intelligence, has moved from sci-fi to reality. It's the subject of his new book, and he joins me via Skype from the UK to explain why he's turned his attention to AI now. Central to the biblical revelation is the notion that human beings, version 1.0, are made in the image of God. And it's unpacking that idea, which was central to my parents' morality, and developing that, of course, in an age, the first generation. You ask, why now? Because we live in the first generation, really, that can modify, say, the genome of all future generations. Uh, We weren't able to do that before, and that raises all kinds of questions about what we may be able to do. The vast increase in computing power, the mining of big data, and the effectiveness of narrow artificial intelligence give a lot of momentum to those who hope that we're going to develop artificial general intelligence. In other words, we're going to be able to create a super intelligence. And that raises all kinds of moral and ethical problems, which many people find very scary. And I felt that because of my commitment and my lecturing on the nature of human beings and on the Genesis story and all the rest of it, It's a very natural field to get into. How I actually got into it was I was asked to give a lecture on it. And as I developed the lecture, I thought, just a moment, this is far too important just to do a lecture. And it generated this book. You make an important distinction between AI and AGI, artificial general intelligence. I guess at the moment it's really AI that we're all living with, uh, whether we choose to or not. I mean, it has an increasingly large and unavoidable presence in so many aspects of our lives. Can I ask, Professor Lennox, if there are forms at least of narrow AI that you've actively embraced or, you know, predictive technology on Netflix or do you have a digital assistant at home, for instance? How how does this land in your own day-to-day? Oh, well, it lands in two directions. Uh, Do I embrace some of it? Of course I do. And I hope many Christians like myself will not only get interested in it, but actually work in it. Because I think that having a system that does something that normally requires an intelligent human to do, one single thing, is really proving itself. I would refer to the wonderful work of Rosalind Pickard, who's a genius at MIT, and she is has developed a subject called affective computing, which uses facial recognition AI on autistic children to predict whether they're going to have seizures and so on. And it has already been used to avoid such situations and therefore give them a better sense of health. These things are all very positive. But 
like a knife. You can use a knife to do surgery and save lives. You can use it to stab people. AI has a downside. And here we are all wearing tracers in the form of smartphones, and we're allowing commercial institutions to suggest new books to us, and all that's wonderful. But what many people don't realize is that a lot of the information that's being harvested, and that's the word, by such AI systems is being sold on without our permission. That raises all kinds of questions of privacy and rights uh, and lots of things like that. So even narrow AI that's doing useful things raises all kinds of problems, both ethical and moral. And the big concern is who's going to police it? What ethics are you going to build into an autonomous car or an autonomous weapon system? One could go on and on. So it's very important we think about these things. And you're right, the ethical and moral uh, dimensions of this are almost endless, really. We'll be talking about them for decades to come as each new innovation and application becomes, you know, goes online. But there's that doesn't exhaust the questions that you're interested in or that are relevant here. I mean, back to that whole idea of the nature of humanity, which in Judaism and in Christianity is bound up with a notion of the image of God. Do you think that in any sense intelligent machines could ever be said to bear the image of God in any sense? Are we reaching the well, limits or having to test the limits of what we consider to be human? The way I would approach that is slightly indirect. We human beings bear the image of God. What does that mean? Part of it is that we are creative. So we can create and invent machines that can do some of the things that we can do and can do it better. So that those machines are partially made in our image. And in that sense, you could say that at a second remove, they're made in the image of God. But behind your question, the huge barrier looms the nature of consciousness. And since we haven't got a notion as to what consciousness is, the experts who are honest say we just don't know. This represents a massive um, problem in the way of the sci-fi merchants, I'll call them for a moment, who think that we're going to develop a conscious uh, machine, we're going to be able to download our brains onto silicon, we're going to be able to cast off our dependence on um, organic chemistry and move to silicon chemistry. Uh, the, the kind of vision that Yuval Noah Harari has in his book Homo Deus, and which some leading scientists just say is absurdly unrealistic. I guess we, we are entering the territory of debates over transhumanism and the extent to which it is a kind, not just a scientific project, but a theological one. I was fascinated to read that in English, the word transhuman actually first appears not in a work of science or technology, but in an 1812 translation of Dante's Paradiso, the final book of the Divine Comedy. You know, he completes his journey through paradise. He's ascending to the spheres of heaven when his human flesh is transformed. And he says, words can't tell of this transhuman change. And I wonder if there is, I guess, a resonance or perhaps even common ground between Christian aspiration and that of the transhumanists. Could you comment on that? Where do you see these cohering and where do they diverge? 
Well, I mention in my book the thing you've just mentioned, so far as I recall. And the very interesting thing is that the whole business, the search for superintelligence and Harari's first agenda for the 21st century, the solution of physical death as a technological problem, they are paralleled by the heart of the Christian promise. We talk about transhumanism. Christianity promises that those who trust Christ become children of God on this earth already. They receive eternal life. And that, in that sense, is transhuman in one at one level because they're going to last eternally. And, of course, the problem of death is solved in the resurrection of Christ, firstly, and then, of course, in the resurrection of all those who trust him eventually. And I have developed this in detail in my book because one of the reasons I felt I could write something is here are these people searching for something which has already appeared. And the big thing that hit me in the middle of writing it is simply this. The search for homo deus, the man who's God, the transhumanist being, is humans reaching towards God. That's a very, very deep, ancient idea that goes back to the beginning of Genesis. The heart of the Christian message is the exact opposite. It's God becoming human. And I wanted to compare those two things and the evidence for their truth. And it seems to me that all this resonates with what is going on in the technology, but gives us a much bigger, not a smaller, but a much bigger worldview picture in which to comprehend it. Professor Lennox, given there is so much changing around us, so much that's still rapidly unfolding, not least in this area of... Uh of AI and its future. I wonder back on a spiritual level, how much place there is in your own life now for, I guess, a sense of mystery or even reserve in your own faith? Well, this is hugely important. I think that once the element of mystery goes, a lot goes. Many of the questions you've asked me are deep questions. They're surrounded by an aura of mystery. But what I feel about it is that we can get far enough in, there's enough evidence to be able to accept them in a worshipful sense. In other words, I feel that I've had enough evidence in life of the existence of God, of his love and his care to trust him with those mysterious gray areas at the edge of existence and sometimes in the center of existence, which we cannot deal with. In other words, it's all very deep, but it's got a depth that is in that sense connected, not with a theory. And I never tire of telling people that God is not a theory. God is a person. And persons are extremely complicated. But much more thrilling it is to have a relationship with a person than a relationship with a theory. And worship is a very important part of my life. That is, I have a telescope in my garden and I wish I had Australian skies, but I went out the other night and I watched the Orion Nebula. It's just spectacular. And there arises in your mind and heart just that sense of longing that there is a much bigger picture and a much bigger world to come. So roll on the world to come, I say. 
on RN This Is Soul Search with me, Meredith Lake. And for National Science Week, I'm joined by Emeritus Professor John Lennox, a pure mathematician at Oxford University, whose latest book offers a Christian evaluation of AI. You heard him say there that he finds enough evidence for the existence of God for him to live by it. And in the past, Professor Lennox has gone head-to-head with several of the new atheists, including Dawkins, to explain why. Today, here on Soul Search, we're not going to restage those debates, though you might hear a little bit of them. I'm keen to hear more about John's personal path through life and faith. These days, he's an advocate for Christian theism in the scientific world, But what personal experiences have led him to see things the way he does? He takes us back to his boyhood in Northern Ireland and his early interests in both maths and God. Well, I became fascinated first with arithmetic at primary school because apparently I could do it very quickly. But... I went through various stages because when I went to secondary school, I had a very good maths teacher, but I had a very good languages teacher. And I got very interested in Latin and in French. And that occupied my mind for a while. And it was in the sixth form when I really changed back to mathematics because it gave me the chance to go to Cambridge. Wonderful. I mean, you mentioned that you were interested in other things. I believe you messed around quite a lot with electronics too as a kid with radios and things like that. I did indeed. In fact, I used to speak to Australian sheep farmers in the evening in Australia and I got up in the morning and that was pretty heady stuff for a boy of 14. (laughs) And It was a very useful hobby because we couldn't afford to travel abroad. And therefore, I was able to learn to speak pretty fluent French without leaving my home. And then I later used this to learn German. And that facility has been extremely useful to me. And indeed, there was a stage where I thought electrical engineering would be the topic for me. But the headmaster intervened and he said, you'll never get into Cambridge for electrical engineering but you might for mathematics, so would you like to have a go? And that's what changed my trajectory. Apart from the role of your school, I wonder about where your family fit into this picture. How was your your interest and your obvious aptitude for electronics and maths and science seen by your parents growing up? I mean, I know you were raised in a really devoutly Christian home. Did that give you a particular orientation to the sciences or to intellectual pursuits more generally? It gave me both orientations. My parents weren't highly educated, but they valued education. And their Christian commitment was real. That's what we saw as children growing up, that they lived Christianity. And so my first impressions of the Christian faith was this is the real thing. And secondly, Although they were devout believers, they had enough sense and enough love for me 
not to force it down my throat. So what they did was to encourage me to think. And that was quite unusual in Northern Ireland society in those days where there was a great tendency towards bigotry, as the whole world knows. So I owe them a huge debt for giving me space to think. And my father particularly encouraged me to think of not only the Christian worldview, but other worldviews. So I'd done a huge amount of reading before I went anywhere near university. And it was a it was a wonderful preparation. And therefore, my early impressions of the Christian faith, where it's mind expanding, it encourages thought, it encourages science. <laughs> the last thing would have occurred to me was that uh, it represents a closing of the mind. And yet I meet that so often in academia where I work. Well, John, you ended up at Cambridge University as an undergraduate to study mathematics. Your teachers were right about that possibility for you. What kind of environment was that for a young Christian with these experiences and with this reading already in the mix interested in maths and science. I mean, I believe you had an early run-in with a Nobel Prize winner on this point. <laughs> I did indeed. But it, it was an exhilarating experience because I discovered that I'd thought a great deal more than most of my fellow students. I'd read far more widely. And although I was focused on mathematics, I was interested in philosophy of science and, of course, Christianity was central to my life. And I found that I was able to hold all these things together. But what Cambridge did, of course, was to put me into a certain limelight that increased on the intellectual defense of Christianity. And you're right, I did have a run-in, a rather sad run-in, because the first time I'd ever met a Nobel Prize winner, and we sat together at dinner and I tried to ask him, because I like playing Socrates and asking questions, I, I said, did you ever think in the work you did that won the Nobel Prize that there's evidence that there's a creator? And he stiffened and he didn't like it. So I thought that was it. And he turned to talk to his companion. But at the end of the meal, he said, Lennox, come to my room. And it wasn't an invitation. It was a command. So I went and to my surprise, he'd invited a number of other senior members of the university. I was the only student, and they sat me down, as I remembered. And he said, Lennox, do you want a career in science? And I said, yes. Well, he said, if you do, you better give up this naive faith in God right away uh, before witnesses tonight, because if you keep on with this, it will cripple you intellectually. You'll never make it. You'll suffer by comparison with your peers and all the rest of it. And I was staggered. So what I asked him was this. I said, what have you got to offer me that's better than what I've already got? And he offered me the philosophy of Émile Bergson, which fortunately, through my reading of C.S. Lewis, I knew about. And I just smiled and said, if that's all you've got, I'll take the risk and I'll stay with what I've got. And so I left the room. But that uh, incident at the age of 19, in a way, it put steel into my heart. And I resolved that if ever I was in the position which I'm now in as a professor at Oxford, that I would never use that kind of tactic. I would always want open discussion, present 
different kinds of the case and trust people enough to choose for themselves rather than be browbeaten by me or anyone else. Mm, Professor Lennox, I guess by that time, this is the 1960s, narratives about, you know, the incompatibility of something called science and something called religion had been circulating in popular culture for, well, at least 100 years since the storm around Darwin's origin of species. It's a, it's a kind of 19th century invention of some of the polemicists of that era. What was your experience, though, of attention on that point between science and religion? Is it something you kept coming up against as you moved into the academic world? Yes, indeed it is, but it's something then I took seriously to read about. And of course, as you say, the iconic incidents are historical. So I very rapidly decided that I would consult the historians who were experts in this. And of course, I found that there was almost no substance in this alleged science-religion conflict that the clash over Darwin and earlier than that, the business of Galileo didn't establish anything like the idea that atheism, atheistic scientists and brilliant people have destroyed religion. It actually established the exact opposite. And therefore, I felt historically confident in combating this, but I noticed something else that became even more important, that there is a conflict, but it's not between science and religion so much as being between the two diametrically opposed worldviews of theism, Christian theism, and atheism. And there are scientists on both sides. So that the question that was being obscured and really became very clear to me early on in my university career was, what can we deduce, if anything, from science? Is it neutral or does it favor the God hypothesis or does it favor the atheist hypothesis? And that's where I put a lot of work and have written several books to say that God and science fit well together. But, and here comes the provocative bit, that uh, atheism and science don't fit well together, leaving God out of it. So that... That, that is provocative. The, I mean, a lot of it, people will be listening to this going, oh, come on, why do you think that the God hypothesis is so compelling? Like, what is it that makes you so sure of that? Well... There are two questions there. Why uh, why are God and science compatible? And why are atheism and science incompatible? So let me take the first one. The history of science, let's start with history because it's so important. In the 16th and 17th centuries, we had an explosion that we call the beginning of modern science. And it was intimately bound up with the Christian faith. And C.S. Lewis, summarizing the work of one of the most brilliant historians and philosophers of science, Sir Alfred North Whitehead, said, men became scientific because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in a lawgiver. In other words, far from Galileo, Kepler, Newton, Clark Maxwell, Babbage, Faraday, and so on, being hindered by their faith in God. It was their conviction that there's a God behind this universe that was the motor that drove their science. 
And I'm certainly not embarrassed or ashamed to be in that company. It's just that many people do not realize this very close link. And it's obvious why there's a link in the sense that science makes a great deal of sense studying the universe if you start with a conviction that there's an intelligent mind behind the universe. And those two things go together. And I've seen absolutely no reason to modify that conviction in any way. Perhaps not modify that particular conviction. And over the years, as you mentioned, you have written whole books arguing that this conflict narrative fundamentally mischaracterises the history of science, especially in that 16th and 17th century period. But Professor Lennox, if you don't buy that conflict thesis, I wonder how you think modern science, and perhaps moving more into the 19th and 20th centuries here, has impacted Christian faith and theology. Do you think in some areas and which areas it has prompted some revisions of religious belief, perhaps particularly on a popular level? Well, that could be, but it's a very wide question. I think one of the things that impacted me occurred in the early 60s, and that was the discovery of the microwave background added to the other evidence of an expanding universe and the conclusion made by Georges Lemaitre, who was a Belgian priest, that the universe had a beginning in what later became uh, called the Big Bang. And that for me, I remember when the evidence was coming in in the UK and leading scientists, and I mean really leading scientists, the editor of Nature, for example, said, we mustn't give in to this idea that the universe had a beginning. Why? Because it will give too much leverage to people who believe the Bible. Now, that was astonishing to me because here was the scientific establishment resisting one of the greatest achievements of 20th century scientific endeavor. So in that sense, it was a, a confirmation of what the Bible had been saying for thousands of years, that there was a beginning. So that was a very positive thing. And I think what you will find, and you asked a, a forked question there uh, in the sense <laughs> that it, it has two sides to it. The confirmatory side in cosmology and so on was then added to massively, I think, in the last 50 to 100 years by the discovery of the fine-tuning of the universe, that this universe we live in and our planet is extremely special because it is absolutely geared to having intelligent life on it, carbon-based life. And this, again, is a pointer. It's not a proof, of course. You only get rigorous proofs in my field of pure mathematics. But it's evidence. It's a pointer to indicate, yes, it is fine-tuned for life because that was the original purpose God had for creating it. The The bigger questions coming on the downside that you mentioned uh, tend to be that uh, people use biology and Richard Dawkins especially as evidence for the non-existence of God. But my first point there would be that is forgetting that whatever you think of evolutionary processes, they all depend on a fine-tuned universe. And nothing shakes the fine-tuning argument for God. And biology certainly doesn't do that. 
Emeritus Professor John Lennox, pure mathematician at Oxford, whose colleague in biology, Professor Richard Dawkins, has a rather different perspective on that. Here's a taste of a formal debate they had on whether science has buried God held at the Oxford Natural History Museum back in 2009. Natural selection is a mechanical, blind, automatic force. It is, it's not, I can't say it's not guided, but there's no need for it to be guided. The whole point is that it works without guidance. But it could be guided. Or do you completely shut that out? I mean, why bother when you've got a perfectly good explanation that doesn't involve guidance? I mean, the why point is, you use, words like, you, lose, you use words like blind and automatic. This watch is blind and automatic, but it's been designed. The words themselves do not shut out that notion. And, and it seems to me that the, the impression I'm getting is that what's coming through is that the whole process is so sophisticated, it itself is giving evidence of a rational mind behind it. John Lennox debating Richard Dawkins at Oxford in 2009. If you'd like to hear more, you'll find a link to the full event in our program notes for today. I'm Meredith Lake, and this is Soul Search on RN, the show about religion and spirituality in our lived experience. The world can look pretty different to different people. And if you're keen for a secular take on questions of meaning and existence, you'll be glad to hear that next time on Soul Search, I'm joined by Sasha Sagan. She grew up with a wondrous love for the natural world and the whole universe, in no small thanks to her father, the astronomer Carl Sagan. Right now, though, I'm in conversation with Professor John Lennox, an advocate for Christian theism in the world of science. As you know, I'm a historian and I'm really interested in the shifting relationships of religion and culture. And it seems to me that the buzz around the new atheism about a decade back was quite a significant moment. John Lennox was in the thick of it. And I wonder how he reflects now on new atheism as a movement, but particularly on that mode of debating science and God. Well, the first thing is nobody wants to debate like that anymore. Uh, I don't, and the atheists don't. And the conflict method of debate has some advantages, but a huge number of disadvantages that you rapidly learn. Because, first of all, it takes a huge amount of time, if you regard it seriously, as I did in preparation, these little short statements, and then trying to calculate responses and preparing that and so on. But the other danger is the danger of cutting corners by going for the emotion of the moment and trying to score points. All of that is negative. And over the years since those early debates, I much prefer, and so do my atheist and agnostic friends, much prefer a moderated discussion where someone like you puts really good questions to both sides and then gets them talking. I think that is much more productive. But So it was at the time. I didn't ask to be involved in any of the debates. They were, so to speak, thrust upon me. And I think they were valuable in the sense that now, 10 years later, I still get letters from people who have moved a long way towards Christianity or become Christians through watching them. And that has encouraged me 
immensely. And there's a real sense in which I was advised by a leading journalist, secular journalist in the UK, just before I faced Hitchens. I said, have you any advice? He said, yes, I've got some advice. First of all, don't try and outwit him because you won't. But secondly, make sure that by the time you've finished, you said what you want to say and not simply reacted to what he said. That was really good advice. And I actually got on very well, which surprises many people, uh, with Christopher Hitchens off stage. But the debates were useful. They focused my mind, of course, enormously because this was the top level of atheism. But they left me with an abiding sense of, uh, and I'm being frank here, of the thinness of the arguments. And it doesn't surprise me that a lot of these arguments are, are slowly passing into oblivion, except among young people who have imbibed them, which means that I find myself having to keep writing and lecturing on this kind of thing to try and explain why these arguments are so insubstantial. It's fascinating that you suggest a generational aspect to the reception of this mode of I guess, tackling big and uh, I think for many people very important questions about what we might believe, what we might take to be true, what kind of foundation we would build a life on, build a community on for that matter. Because I think you're right that some people are still absolutely absorbed by those debates. And yet I've had other guests on this show for whom a kind of science versus religion, atheist versus Christian stag fight, as it's been called, is not really that relevant to their own spiritual path and experience. And I wonder if there's a sense that you recognise of, of tiredness almost, not just a sense of the, the limits of the mode, but a tiredness with that particular terrain for a conversation about faith and the life of faith today. I think that is true. And it's particularly true when pain and suffering hit because the business of producing rational answers to arguments is the business, uh, the life's business of many people, including myself. But life is much bigger than that. And we do not turn to science for questions of meaning. It's very good at answering the how questions and the why questions of function but it doesn't answer the questions of meaning. And people get tired simply if they're bombarded by argument, if they don't see the point. Now, this goes way beyond the natural sciences, but it is even more important for most people than answering questions. I think human beings are very complex, and sometimes we need answers to big questions, but other times we need to sense that there's someone out there who loves us, who cares for us. Now, that, of course, raises other questions. But to me, uh, the fact that God loves me is even bigger than the fact he created the universe that I study. John, that question of suffering and whether God might offer a radical solidarity in the midst of that suffering, which I think you're right, is central to the Christian narrative, I guess is, is one of the pressure points that never goes away for Christians or for, for humans, perhaps. Like, how do we explain our experience of suffering? How do we endure that experience, whether explanations are forthcoming or not? 
At this point, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Here in Australia, we've had other crises with bushfires and droughts and other things like that. What do you see from your perspective as the pressure points, so to speak, for Christian faith and theology right now? Well, the pressure point is where it's always been. How can you believe in God when these things are happening? And the reason I wrote a little book, which is 64 pages long, is that this is a huge question. And there are no simplistic answers to it, Meredith. And that's the important thing to say. Uh, There's always a danger of people getting the impression that people like me think we've got it all sussed out and these things don't bother us. They bother us extremely. This question is the hardest question I face as a Christian. And as you very rightly pointed out, it's the hardest question anybody faces. And I can understand people who simply say, well, the easy answer is that there isn't a God and we just have to get used to that. Well, I think that there are deep grounds for hope in the Christian faith, but they're deep because they go into the concept which is difficult to get your head around of a suffering God. At the heart of Christianity is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if that is God, then what's God doing on a cross is the crude way of putting it. And what I say is at the very least it shows that God has not remained distant from our suffering, but has himself become part of it. And it's the resurrection that gives real hope. Now, that doesn't solve all of our problems. I'm locked down as I talk to you. COVID-19 is raging in our country. We didn't prepare for it properly, and we're facing the consequences. If I die of COVID-19 as a highly vulnerable elderly person, what I've got is a real hope that transcends death. And it doesn't give me all the answers but it puts me into relationship with a person who I believe is the answer, Christ himself.